uh, the last time we were together, uh, we were together and we focused on the first uh, nine verses in the third chapter of the gospel according to Luke. When we looked at that passage, we simply talked about a divine appointment in the desert, how God called uh, this man named John away from the world, how, jo how God called this man named John into a desert place so that he could hear a word from God. Catch this. God set up a divine appointment in the desert, and God literally pulled John away from the world so that John could receive a word from the Lord. I don't want you to miss that. God pulled him away from something because God had something significant to say to him. And while it is true that we might not get a calling to go to a desert, I do believe that God calls us all to separate ourselves from the world so that we can clearly hear his word. You should hear me this morning. God wants to intentionally pull you away from the world. God wants to intentionally place you in places where you are by yourself so that you can clearly hear from him. One question that we considered last week is a question that we needed to consider uh, this week. Actually, that was two weeks ago. We needed to consider the question, am I clearly uh, committed to pulling away from the world so that I can hear a word from the Lord? I know you got a job. I know you got a lot on your plate. I know you got kids. I know you haven't been to seminary, but here's the truth. Anytime we pull away from the world, it gives us another opportunity to hear from God's word. When I talk about pulling away from the world, I'm not talking about simply a, 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 a specific place. I'm talking about a mindset. I'm talking about a mindset that leaves God out. I'm talking about a mindset that places you on the throne of your life. I'm talking about a mindset that would give a greater value to Netflix and chilling than fasting and praying. I'm talking about a, a value and a mindset that gives more priority to scroll that that gives more priority to scrolling through uh, the timeline of social media than scrolling through God's word. I'm talking about a mindset. Catch this, where we are more committed to doing what we want to do rather than taking the time to doing what God has called us to do. In the text, God pulls John away from the world so that John can receive a word from the Lord. And in the text, the word that God gives John is a word concerning repentance. Uh, we see that true repentance is a mindset where we understand that we have been forgiven greatly by God. And because we have been forgiven by God, we no longer have to perform for God. Uh, repentance requires that we turn away from something, but more importantly, that we pursue something. It, it gives us this mindset that, yes, uh, although you are a believer, you will struggle. Yes, although you are a believer, you will have hard moments. Yes, although you are a believer, you will have hard times. But catch this. Because of my faith in Jesus, because my faith has secured a position for me that is eternally secure, I am loved, I am accepted, I am no longer a slave of sin. I am, I am beloved of God because of what Christ has accomplished for me on the cross. Because of my new position, I have a right standing with God. Because of my new position, I am a son of God, or you are a daughter of God. I am no longer expected, catch this, to perform or to impress God, but now my faith requires that I live a life of trusting God. And for us, living a life of trusting God means that we must have the faith and the commitment to pursue God. Trusting God is not simply about coming to church. Trusting God is not simply about uh, checking off a box, but trusting God is me giving the Lord my life. I've got to understand, 
for me to be the man that God's called me to be, for you to be the woman that God's called you to be, for me to be the husband that God's called me to be, for you to be the wife that God's called you to be, for me to be the father that God's called me to be, for, for you to be the mother that God has called you to be, I got to ask the question, not simply, what am I turning from? The question I got to ask myself is, what am I specifically turning to? It's a question I asked last week, and it's a question I'm going to ask again this week. When you look at your life, what is it that you are consistently turning to? When you look at your life, when things don't go your way, when things disappoint you, when things upset you, when things uh, do not play out the way you wanted it to play out, what do you turn to? Is what you turn to found in the bottle? Is what you turn to found in the body of Christ? Is what you turn to uh, found in something that's that's celebrated by the world, or is what you turn or is what you're turning to something that is celebrated by God's word? As your pastor, here's here's my here's my heart for you. I know life is hard. I know life is tough. I know that you and I will face disappointments. I know you and I will have moments where we want to give up and where we want we want to lose hope. But my prayer for you as, as your pastor is that we never lose hope because of Christ. My prayer for you as your pastor, my prayer for you as your brother in Christ is for you to be willing to turn to the truth of God's word. Because in turning to God's truth, we are able to drown out the lies of Satan. John certainly confronts the people in verses 1 through 9, but catch this. In verses 10 through 20, John takes the time to counsel the people. He confronts the people. He challenges them with a hard message, but I love it because he, he follows up with what I would consider some discipleship. He lets them know that they got to continue to grow in their faith, that yes, placing your faith and trust in Christ is important. Yes, placing your faith and trust in Christ is significant, but catch this, that's not the end of the story. I want to say that to somebody this morning. You placing your faith in Christ was not the end of your spiritual journey. It's just the beginning. The beginning places you in a, a position where you are part of God's family. And we love that. We celebrate that. We will never get over that. But catch this. But God desires for you to continue growing in that relationship. That does not happen by accidents, but it happens when we consider what God is calling us to pursue. So first, when you look at it, uh, Paul, or not Paul, uh, John, uh, sees ministry as a part of his life. And the Gospel of Luke tells us something consistent that we must uh, be committed to modeling ourselves. When you think about ministry, when you think about life, ministry is not just for those who stand on stage. Ministry is not just uh, for those uh, who go to seminary or those who have uh, some titles behind their name or titles before their name, but ministry is for every single believer. I believe it that every member is a minister because all of us, catch this, should be ministers of reconciliation because we carry the message of Christ. So when you hear this message, I don't want you to think that this is just for the preachers in the room or just for the elders in the room or just for the deacons in the room or just for those who are considering a life of full-time vocational ministry. This is a message for the life of every single believer. So when we think about a model for ministry, we think about something that he is painting a picture for all of us. Uh, not just me, but all of us should see what John does with his life and catch this. We need to be challenged with what are we personally doing with our life. 
So when you look at John's life, the first thing we see is John had a commitment to ministry. In the text, John gives us a general principle, and then he gives us a specific practice. Catch this. In the message, you see that repentance is not just something that relates to us and God, but repentance must be demonstrated with how we interact with people. Verse 11 says, and he answered them, whoever has two eunuchs is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. He's saying, if you got two coats and one and a person don't have a coat, give up your coat. He's saying, if you got food and somebody does not have food, you need to give them some food. This is directly connected to repentance. We want to look at these issues as two different issues, but these are one in the same. Uh, the, the sermon is broken up because I don't have uh, three hours a Sunday to, to break up. Um, in a message, I know uh, some people would love that, other people would hate it, but I had to break up the message uh, because I didn't have enough time. But what I'm saying this morning is connected to the message of repentance. It is all there together. This is one consistent uh, thought that is carried throughout the text, that repentance leads me to deal with other people. I want you to catch this. Repentance challenges us to not just pursue Christ. We dealt with that last message in the last message. But repentance also challenges me to pursue people. Repentance requires that you, not the preacher, that you, not the deacon, that you, not the bishop, that you are willing to pursue people. Not please people, but to pursue people. Repentance leads us to focus on needs, catch this, that Christ opens our eyes to. When we truly repent, our eyes will be open. God opening up our eyes is not about me getting more. Like a lot of times we want to we wanna ask God to open up my eyes so I can make more money. Open up my eyes with a new business. Open up my eyes so I can figure out how to lose weight. Open up my eyes so I can have a better house. Open up my eyes so I can do something for me. But catch this, in the text, God opening up their eyes to a need was about ministry. It wasn't about a man. It was, a, it was about blessing someone else, not about blessing themselves. And yes, I stand as one who wants to be blessed. Yes, I stand as one who desires a bigger blessing. I, I hate to tell some of y'all that, but I pray for more, right? That's who I am. But I cannot, I cannot get to a place in my life why I'm so consumed with more for myself that I operate in such a way why I'm ignoring needs of those who are around me. Why I'm so concerned about my house, I'm so concerned about my kids, my family, my situation, that I don't take the time to wrestle with how would the Lord desire to use me to meet a need for somebody else? How would the Lord allow me to take what I have and share it with somebody else? How would the Lord allow me to take what he's blessed me with so that I can be a bigger blessing for somebody else? If we think about it, we should pursue the Lord, but as we pursue the Lord, we need to be open to God giving us a mindset and eyes to serve others. 
when I think about this mindset, I want you to hear me say clearly, repentance reminds me of how generous God has been to me. When I understand all that the Lord has done for me, all that the Lord has done in me and through me, how God has given me more than I deserve, how much more should I give to others? Not to earn God's favor, not to uh, get one up over them so that some people, so that people owe me, but, but how much more can I serve others because God has served me? How much more can I be generous to others because ultimately God has been generous to me? The issue with many of us is, and when I say many of us, I'm talking about myself, I'm so prideful, I'm so self-centered, I'm so conceited, I'm so self-consumed that I think that what I have was earned. I think God owes me something. I live in such a way that I believe that everything that I have is a result of my hard work. That's a lie. Lord's been good. Lord's been so good to me. He's been far better to me than I've been to myself. And when I recognize how generous the Lord has been to me, how much more should I be generous to others? I mean, let's be real. How many of us, how, how many of us had a morning like this? Got to your closet. Oh, I don't like that shirt. Oh, I wore that shirt last week. Oh, this shirt doesn't fit my, my new boots. Oh, this shirt doesn't go with my watch. Oh, this, this, these pants don't go with my earrings. Like, how many of us did that this morning? Like, how many of us uh, thought about breakfast this morning? In your cabin, it was full. You had oatmeal and Rice and potatoes and probably made some bacon and some sausage. You just had all the, all the stuff that was in there. And there's nothing wrong with that. As long as we are not so consumed with what we have, that it keeps us from understanding that there's those who don't have. Even more so, I hope that we're not so consumed with what we have that we think that those who don't have, um, don't have it because they're lazy or they're sinful, they've done something wrong. Shame on us. Shame on us if we think that other people are hurting or in hard situations uh, just because they've done something bad. There's some people who have done nothing wrong and have found themselves in really, really hard places and hard circumstances and hard situations. I want you to hear me clearly this morning. I'm not condemning you having clothes in your closet. I'm not condemning you uh, for having food in your pantry. Please do not hear me say that. What I am condemning is a mindset that is only concerned about my closet and my cabinet. We're condemning that now. We are not going to live in such a way where we see needs of other people and ignore those needs. We are not going to do that. As a church, we are going to be committed to doing mercy ministry. I've said this before. If you've been in a church uh, finance meeting here at our church, uh, we are very clear that we try our best uh, to give away 10% of everything that we do. Uh, we believe it's a mindset that honors God. Uh, we believe that as, as believers, we begin with a tithe. We give our first fruits to the Lord. And as a church, we do the same thing. Uh, we do that because we believe that there are people who need help. So we do, and, and, and no, no shade, no knock. Sometimes um, we could do a better job of promoting what we do. But I'm not going to have somebody come up on stage and me write a check to them. I'm not, I'm not embarrassing nobody like that. I'm not going to help somebody um, with their rent and parade them in front of the church. We're not doing that. But we are going to help people who are hurting. And we are going to be committed to doing what's right for those who are in need. Because that is what God has called us to do. 
We cannot ignore needs, and we cannot live in such a way that we are just concerned with ourselves. Part of the reason why we're doing the Thanksgiving outreach is we need to do more for the least of these. We need to do more for people who don't have what we have. And as a church body, as a pastor, we're going to continue to do that because it glorifies the Lord. So first, we have a, a general principle. we got to be more generous. But then secondly, we have a specific practice. In verse 10, it mentions a nameless crowd, but in verses 12 through 14, it mentions uh, tax collectors and soldiers. Verse 12 says, the tax collectors also came and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? Verse 14, the soldiers came and asked, what shall we do? They want to know, what are we called to do based upon our specific case in life? The passage gives us a question in a way that helps us understand that your vocation, catch this, should never hinder your relationship with God. Like I, I think sometimes I preach and sometimes y'all get a little frustrated with me because y'all know I'm the full-time uh, ministry guy. I'm the double Christian, right? I, I'm, I'm a Christian on Sunday, but I'm a Christian throughout the whole week because I work for a Christian ministry. I get that. But I want to I let you know what the text is communicating. What the text is communicating, even if you don't work for FCA, or even if you don't work for the Navigators or Crew or Campus Crusade, even if you don't work for a church, you still have a responsibility as a believer to not allow your job to hinder you pursuing the Lord. That's for everybody. That's not just for me. That is for every believer. So when you see the word tax collector or the word um, soldier, you can substitute the word school teacher or lawyer or construction worker. Put your vocation right in the text. And in the text, Jesus is answering in such a way where he's reminding us that the gospel should impact your vocation. The gospel should impact how you uh, approach your profession. The gospel cannot be hidden so that you are not uh, wrestling with how the Lord is calling you to live. But the gospel reminds us that even on my job, I am not to take advantage of others. Even on my job, I am not to use it uh, for personal advantage. I am, uh, I am to allow personal repentance to even impact my profession. Uh, we are Baptist church. Uh, for some of y'all, that may be a surprise, but we are Baptists, right? Um, there is a, um, there's another denomination called the Presbyterian Church. Um, they have something called the Westminster Confession or the Westminster Catechism. And they have an article in uh, uh, Article 15, verse 5, that speaks about repentance that I want to read to you. It says, men or women ought to not content themselves with just general repentance. But it is every man or woman's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular proclivity to sin. Every one of us has a particular proclivity to sin, and based upon our profession, that profession will give us more opportunities to sin. What the text is communicating is, I am not to allow even my profession to get in the way of repentance. So first we see John's commitment in ministry, but secondly we see John's character in ministry. Verse 15 says, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is, is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. 
as John's public ministry grew, John's personal identity uh, became unsure. People began to think, is he the Messiah? People began to think, was he the Christ? And I love John because he gives a very quick and, and clear answer that I am not the one who you're looking for. John tells them, I will baptize with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. And he says, that person who's coming, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Uh, contextually, uh, we got to remember uh, that in Palestine, teachers were held or disciples, uh, discipleship leaders or teachers were held in such great esteem that those who were being discipled by them or those who were being taught by them um, would volunteer themselves to service to that person. As I was preparing this week, I kind of thought, like, maybe this is where uh, the modern-day uh, armor bearers come from. Some of y'all are not going to catch that, but just, just Google it, right? Google it. When you think about it, John is saying, I am not worthy to do anything for the Lord. He's saying, I am so unworthy that if my worthiness if my worthiness was to qualify, qualify me to do anything, he says, I am not even qualified to untie the sandals of the Lord. I love that statement because it is a statement of humility. It is a statement about the greatness and goodness of God. And yes, the scriptures do tell us that we must come boldly to the throne of grace that we may be able to obtain mercy in the time of need. Yes, because we are sons and daughters of God, we have an opportunity to have a relationship with the Lord that is, that is amazing. That relationship with God should never place us in a position of pride. It should never place us in a position where we think that we are worthy of what God has given us. John's character is marked by humility. John's character led him to make more of Christ than himself. John's character led him to make more of Christ and less of himself. And it didn't matter how many people came to hear him preach. It didn't matter what the masses said. He understood that Christ was greater than him. He understood that Christ was the king, that Christ was superior. And because Christ was superior, he understood that Christ should be in a place in his life and in other people's life that no one should be able to touch. That was his mindset. He was, he was committed to understanding the life of humility. But he also gives us a word that reminds us about Jesus' superiority. He tells us that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus is superior because uh, water baptism is simply external, but he's communicating to us that the spirit and the fire baptism is something that will happen in our lives that is internal. So hear me clearly, a person can be baptized with water, Without, be, without being baptized with the Holy Spirit. And you can be baptized with the Spirit without being baptized with water. The most important thing is that we are baptized into the family of God. When you think about this, this, this idea of baptism between uh, the Spirit and, the, and fire, there's a preposition that connects those two things together. These are one and the same. The baptisms are not separate. There's not one uh, spirit baptism and then another fire baptism where you start speaking in tongues and running around the church. Sorry, that's, just, that's not consistent with the scriptures, right? In the text, the spirit baptism is something that God does for every believer. And the fire baptism is something that God does for every single believer. I want you to go with me quickly to 1 Corinthians 12, 13.
Scripture declares, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Romans 8, 9 simply says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in, spa- if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. If you do not have the Holy Spirit in your life, you're not a Christian. Uh, so many times we, we've been taught in church that I'm going to place my faith in the Lord, and then I do all this other stuff. I speak in tongues. I run around the church. I shout, and then I get in my language. It's not what the Scripture is teaching. The Scripture is teaching us very clearly that once we receive the Lord into our life, we receive the Spirit into our life. There's several things that the Spirit does. I don't have time to go into all of them, but I want to give just a few. The first thing we got to understand is that the Spirit regenerates us. The moment you place your faith in Christ, God places his Spirit inside of you, and you become born again. That's John chapter number 3. We are born from above. The moment you place your faith in Jesus, you are born again. But not only are you born again, the Scripture also tells us that we are indwelt by the Spirit. John 14 Verses 16 through 17 tell us, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You will know him, for he dwells in you, and he will be in you. Part of the blessing of being a believer is that we have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, that Christ is present in my life. Not only are we regenerated and indwelt, but also we are sealed with the Spirit. Ephesians chapter number 1, verses 13 through uh, 14 simply say, In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Catch, Catch the progression. You heard the word. You didn't have just a feeling, but you heard the word of truth. You believed in the word of truth. You trusted God for the truth. And God sealed you by, in, by indwelling his Holy Spirit in your life. As a Christian, catch this, you are sealed. You cannot lose it. God has given you something that, you, that, that since you cannot earn it, you cannot earn your way out of it. And as a Christian, we got to understand that what the Spirit has done for us is, is something that has made us a part of God's body. That is the finished work. Like, God has finished that part of it. I will always be a part of his body. I will always be a son or a daughter of God based upon Christ. That's the spirit baptism. But the second side is different. That's the fire baptism. That is the purification and cleansing of your life. So we got to do some work right there now. Not just you. This is me. When I look at this text, I see, Thomas, that's what you got to work on. There's some areas of your life that need to be burned away. There's some areas of your life that need to be transformed and changed. I don't have time to go into all the scriptures. um, But when you think about it, it it, it paints the picture of the refiner's fire. In the the cultural day, to make metal, uh, they would purify the molten lava by putting it on the fire. They would burn away everything that was impure. They would burn away everything that was not uh, natural in it. And, and the, the, the refiner would know 
that was ready when he could look at the molten lava or the molten metal and see its reflection. God wants to put you in the fire so that he can see himself in you. That's the fire baptism. That's the part where God is purifying you and cleansing you. That's the part of sanctification. That's the part we don't like. That's the part that's going to hurt you because God wants to ultimately change you and transform you. The spirit regenerates us. The spirit cleanses us. The spirit indwells us. But now the spirit begins to empower us. The more we surrender to the spirit, the more I'm changed, the more I'm transformed, and the more I become like Christ. So first, John's commitment to ministry, what we see. Secondly, we see John's character in ministry. But thirdly, we see John's courage in ministry. Verse 18 says, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things Herod had done, added this to them. And he locked up John in prison. Basically, Herod was an awful leader who took his brother's wife. He did a lot of bad things. He did a lot of sinful things. And John spoke truth to power. And what we want to believe, what we want to read in the story, because all of us are acquainted with a good Hollywood movie, we want to believe that, that John spoke truth and Herod changed and Herod confessed his sins and Herod asked him for forgiveness and Herod turned and Herod did what was right. It's not in the text. What's in the text specifically is that John was the greatest prophet born amongst women. That's how the scripture describes John. He is the greatest prophet born amongst women. At the time, he has the greatest ministry that has ever been on this earth. He has the greatest following that has ever been seen. And God allows him to go to prison and get his head cut off. We don't want to hear that. We don't want to accept that truth as a Christian. It does not seem right that for John to be a righteous man, to be a preacher of the gospel, to be doing what God's called him to do, we do not think that it's okay for God to let him go to prison and die. But that's what God does. And that doesn't just happen with John. That happens with us. We got to get to a place in our life as believers where we understand that this world is not my home. So many of us are struggling in our faith because we're looking for heaven on the earth. We're looking for things to be perfect on the earth. We're looking for things to line up in our, in our favor on the earth. And in the text, you have a person who's faithful. He's preaching the gospel. He's doing what God called him to do. He's living on his purpose. He's walking in his authority. He's doing everything God's called him to do, and he dies. He's killed. He's murdered. He had his head cut off by an unrighteous man. That's what the text is telling us. That is our faith, guys. Our faith does not guarantee us getting what we want on this earth. Our faith is not about you having your best life and you getting all the things you pray for on this side of heaven. But the text tells us that John was faithful to the end and he was faithful to God. That's what it means to be a believer. That's the kind of faith that God's calling us to. 
That's the kind of reality that as a believer you need to accept because if you don't accept that reality, you're going to find yourself in the prison. You're going to start asking some questions. You're going to find yourself in a prison. You're going to start thinking that God has forgotten about you. You're going to find yourself in a prison. You're going to start thinking that the Lord is wrong, that God is not good. You're going to start hearing those lies. You're going to start hearing Satan's attack on you. And when you look at the text, when you look at John, it doesn't make sense that for a sovereign, loving, holy God to allow an unrighteous leader to kill a righteous man. It does not make sense. But our faith does not make sense. That's why it is faith. That's why it is the the foolishness of the gospel that leads us to life. When you look at the text, John specifically has courage because he gives us three things that we can apply to our lives. First thing you see, and I'm not even to my points of application yet, but the first thing you see is this. John is faithful to the gospel himself, itself. John preaches the truth. John does not change the truth. He does not allow the culture and the time and the leader to dictate the truth, but John remains faithful to the gospel itself. He keeps giving the word. He doesn't add to it. He doesn't take away from it. He doesn't water it down. He's simply faithful to trust God with the truth. That's what we got to do. You and I, we are called to be faithful to the gospel itself. We're called to be faithful to understand that God's provision of salvation does not always make sense. But I'm going to trust God's plan rather than my own plan. Secondly, John is faithful no matter the audience. He preached the same truth to the crowd that he preached to Herod. Same truth to the crowd that he gave to the tax collector. Same truth to the crowd that he gave to the soldier. He did not change based upon his audience. We don't change. We're not going to comply to this world. We're not going to be molded and shaped into the likeness of the image of what this world wants, but we've got to be faithful no matter the audience. And then lastly, John was faithful even though it cost him his life. I know it's going to sound like very heavy. It's going to sound very, um, very hard to hear. But as a Christian, following Jesus is going to cost you something. I know a lot of times we want to talk about all the good stuff we get. And we get, we get more than we deserve. But following Jesus is going to cost you a lot. It's going to cost you some friendships. It's going to cost you some money. It may cost you that promotion. It may cost you on that opportunity. But the question is, even though it costs me something, Am I willing to be faithful to it? Because catch this. When you think about the message and when you think about those who surrender their life to the Lord, we always receive more from God than we have given to God. God is calling you to surrender your life. And in surrendering your life, God can do more with your life than you can do with your own life. So here's my, here's my points of application. And Chris, y'all can come on back up now. When you think about the text, you think about these 10 quick verses in the text. There are three things that I believe that we should pray and three things that I believe that we should specifically apply. Matter of fact, this is Communion Sunday. 
uh, Andy and whoever else is doing uh, offering, I mean, doing the communion. Could y'all come on up now? And I want you to go ahead and pass out the elements uh, while we are giving our three points of application. My brother, could you jump up and help him? Oh, oh Stacy, Stacy, we got somebody coming. Sorry about that, my brother, but thank you for being willing. Here, y'all guys can go ahead and start. Andy, Stacy, y'all can go ahead and start. Yeah. Here are my three points of application. When we think about the text and we think about the passage specifically, we all should ask the Lord to help us to be in a position where our eyes are open. Once again, I am not condemning you for having clothes in your closet. I am not condemning you for having food in the cabinet. We'll never do that. But I am asking you to pray about who in your life doesn't have a coat and who in your life has an empty cabinet. I believe that we can do something about it. I believe individually but also corporately that God has called us to invest in people who have been planted into our life. And that's something that I cannot tell you specifically, but that's something that you've got to be willing to do personally. So first, Lord, help us by opening up our eyes. Secondly, we want to pray, Lord, help us be humble. Uh, we want to have that mindset that John had where he was bold, he was courageous, he was committed, but he was humble. He understood that he could not be placed on a pedestal because ultimately God deserves the pedestal. And yes, in life, I want you to be faithful. I want you to be an example. I want you to be a model, but I don't want you to allow people to put you on a pedestal. I want you to be so committed to pointing people to Christ that you are willing to say, what I have done is insignificant. But what God wants to do is most significant. So first, Lord, open up our eyes. Secondly, Lord, help us be humble. And then lastly, Lord, help us be courageous. Life is, life is hard. And we're going to have some days where we're disappointed and some days where we're discouraged. And sometimes the Lord is going to allow things to happen in our lives that don't make sense. They don't jive with the story that we want to write. But here's the truth. God's plan is always better than our plan. God's plan leads us to a place of peace, leads us to a place of provision, and it always protects us. I don't always know the story. I don't always know what God is doing. But even when I cannot see God's hands, I can trust his heart. And God's heart is always to protect me and to love me and to do what's best for me. 